Albert Lee Seed is proud to sponsor the Tractor Time podcast. Like you, Albert Lee Seed is committed to regenerative agriculture and organic farming. As a third-generation, family-owned company, Albert Lee Seed has been local and independent since 1923. They offer non-GMO and organic seed for the whole farm, from cover crops and small grains to forages, and are home to Viking brand corn and soybeans, the first seed line in the industry to offer guaranteed purity levels for non-GMO corn and soybeans. Yes, uh, they do sell seed, but they are also on a mission to help farmers replenish soil health and restore ecological diversity, and they want to help you create that healthy bottom line. Uh, I'm sure you want to learn more about Albert Lee Seeds and their organic and non-GMO seed lineup. The best way to do that is to visit their website at alseed.com. That's A-L-S-E-E-D.com. And view their catalogs online. Uh, or just give them a call at 1-800-352-5247 to request the catalog. Thank you again to Albert Lee Seed for sponsoring this program. We are in a revolution, but it is a revolution in which the side that fires the first shot loses. We will not fire any shots because our weapon is uncommon good sense. Our program today is Tractor Time Podcast, brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. This is the first episode of the third season uh, our 24th episode total. Uh, thank you to our listeners for continuing to support us. Thank you for our sponsor, Albert Lee Seed, for making this third season and this episode a reality. Uh, on today's program, we're going to honor our 2018 EcoAg Award winner, who we celebrated in December at our 43rd annual conference in Louisville, Kentucky, Jeff Moyer. You might remember that name or recognize that name, excuse me, is a longtime organic farmer, author, lecturer. His work with the Rodale Institute, both in hands-on farming and as their executive director, is really advancing the state of the art of organic agriculture and building bridges to bring these methods to mainstream conventional farmers. I uh, can't tell you how much we are thankful for the work that he and Rodale Institute do. Uh, his talk at our conference uh, in his workshop was aimed at helping farmers see the future of the organic certification industry and how words like regenerative and sustainable, in quotes, are already being fought about in the advertising boardrooms across the world. Uh, like it or not, we're in a food fight, he says. Right now, organic is in the middle of that fight. So is the word regenerative and sustainable and sustainability. He'll go on. And it's a fascinating talk. Uh, other past winners who have showed up on the Tractor Time podcast have included Dr. Vandana Shiva in 2017, Gary Zimmer won the award in 2011, Ronnie Cummings won the award in 2009, Joel Southen in 2006, and Neil Kinsey in 2003. But this episode, we want to celebrate Jeff Moyer and the work he's done. Here's his talk from our 2018 conference on regenerative organic certification. Thank you for listening in today, and have a happy 2019. Okay. Hopefully you're here to, to talk about regenerative organic certification. And when I was building this presentation, uh, I tried to save a lot of room at the end for some questions and answers, because I think you'll probably have uh, more questions than maybe even I can answer. So let's jump into it, see where it goes. And, and if you have some questions, um, we'll try to save them to the end. But if we start to run out of time, you know, throw something at me, and, and we'll talk about it. It's important that we think about these words, because words really, really have meaning. They have meaning in the marketplace. 
They have meaning to customers and consumers. They have meaning to brands. And that's what I want to talk about today. Because like it or not, we're in a food fight. There is a real battle going on around the world for how food is going to be produced. And organic, the way it stands today, is in the midst of that battle and that fight. But so is the word regenerative. So was, up until very recently, the word sustainable and sustainability. And we'll talk about that as we go along. Let's look at what's happening here in this photograph as we think about how food is being produced. This is a hog operation. And a little hard to tell from this picture, especially if you came early and sat in the back. Maybe you can see, like this sow here, all of them, they're all laying on their side, their feet facing in this one direction, and the steel bar is pinning them to the floor. They cannot get up. They cannot move. They cannot turn their head. Their head sits in a, there, here's the feed trough, so the head's in the feed trough. There's a grate under their back end, and they poop into the trough. And that's their life. A little hard to tell from this photo, too, that these pigs have a light green color to them. That's because this, this operation has to be completely sterile. Because any germs get in there, they all get sick, and everybody dies. So they're painted uh, with a green uh, bactericide. It's, they just spray paint it right over them so that they're sterile. There are a lot of people in the world, a lot of people, that think that's how we should produce food and that that's the direction that it's going. And in fact, this isn't in this picture, but if we think about it in many terms, this could be an organic hog operation, and it would be legal under the NOP rules. At Rodale Institute, we happen to think pigs should be produced like this. If you go and talk to customers and consumers, they're going to tell you this is how they think pork is being produced. Not like this. Like this. But if you want to put pork in a McDonald's-type product, I'm not picking on McDonald's, and you want to sell it across the counter for their dollar menu, that's what you're going to do. So we're driving the market in that direction. But there was this gentleman named J.I. Rodale, who in 1942 wrote some words on a blackboard. He said, healthy soil equals healthy food equals healthy people. Those six words tell a very important story. How many people in the room here are farmers? Yeah, a good bit of you. What he's telling us as farmers is that our job is not to take care of the soil, it's not to produce food. That's what you get paid for. That's true, but that's not your job. That's not the end goal. The end goal is to make people healthy. There's no way raising pigs in a crate pinned to the floor, spraying bactericide over them is making us healthy. There is no way that spraying uh, pesticides on the plants is making us healthy. If that were the case, then, the, you know, I don't know if you heard Don Huber, or I guess he spoke earlier, you know, Don will talk about Roundup. It, um, if that were the case, then the more Roundup we sprayed, the healthier we get. And that's just the opposite is true. He was not a farmer. He was a businessman. You may notice that he's wearing a coat and tie. He always wore a coat and tie. There's all these pictures of him out on the farm. I'm sure he had like his work suit and his business suit, but he always wore a coat and tie. Interesting character. But he's the one who really put the word organic in front of agriculture as we know it today in our food production system. And he did that because he bought a farm and he didn't know anything about agriculture, so it was just logical to him 
to not use all these tools that conventional agriculture was moving in the direction. And this was way back in 1942. So again, legacy of words. What happened was, in, he passed away in 1971, and his son Robert Rodale took over. And Robert Rodale was concerned about a bunch of things. Yes, he was concerned about human health like his father, but he was also concerned about environmental health, and he was one of the early uh, outspoken advocates of this concept of climate change and how the way we manage land can positively or negatively impact the environment in which we live. He was also concerned with the speed at which uh, agriculture was adopting organic practices and principles. How many farmers in the room are, are certified organic operations? Yeah, a good bunch of you as well. So what he was saying is if things are moving too slow, the best way to speed that up is to like give it away. You don't want to hold on to it too tight. You want to give it away. So he advocated for giving the organic standard to the USDA. Many people, maybe some of you in this room, would argue that that was a bad idea, and we're still dealing with the ramifications of that. But he thought it was a good idea, and so he helped to get the USDA to take over that word and put some of his personal resources behind making that happen. But we all know that when you give something away, you give up control. There's a lot of things that we lost in giving the standard to the USDA, one of which was this idea of continuous improvement. We lost that. The idea, to some extent, that uh, animal welfare is important to the issue. Oh, so what he did was he came up with the word regenerative. And he started using the word regenerative, organic agriculture, way back in the mid to late 1970s. He was probably using it around, by 1980, he was using it in all of his language and writing. Most of the world said, eh, it takes too, it's too hard to explain what regenerative means. We don't know exactly what it means. Let's use the word sustainable. He said, I hate the word sustainable. Sustainable means you're trying to hold on to what you've got. Uh, there's a, f a friend of mine, Greg Bowman, he's a journalist. If you read any of the New Farm writings from way back in the 80s and 90s, you might have read some of his work. Greg Bowman always said, if someone asked you what your relationship was like with your spouse or significant other and you said, oh, it's sustainable, would people be happy or would they be sad? It's kind of a sad word in many cases. It says I'm fighting hard to hold on to what I have. Bob Rodale said, if we think about things differently and think about the soil differently, we can actually farm it and regenerate it while we use it. Uh, he was a, an avid uh, bicycle rider. He was in the uh, 1968, I believe, 68 Olympics. He was, a, he was a skeet shooter. He wasn't a bike rider. But he really was intrigued with the bicycles uh, riders. And he created, built a velodrome in Pennsylvania for the Olympic team to train at. He was that into it. And what he said was, when I ride my bicycle, the only thing that wears out is the bicycle. I actually improve because I'm a system of biology. If we take that same philosophy and think about the soil in our farms, then the more you work your farm, if you manage it right, the healthier it gets, the stronger it gets. It doesn't wear out. If you spray it with chemicals and put salt-based fertilizer on it and till the shit out of it, it's going to go downhill and die. But if you feed it right, rest it, water it, and manage it well, it will improve, it will regenerate. So this is the legacy of those words. So we've got this word organic and this word regenerative, and we're trying to figure out how that fits in the marketplace. Well, we know for, for a fact that for us at Rodale Institute, it's all about the soil. And the organic standard, as it's written, does talk about soil and even mentions the word soil health in the law, not in the regulation. But the fact of the matter is, there's not a lot of teeth 
in the organic standard around the word soil. And in fact, if you look at the world and how we're thinking about soil, um, this isn't Rodale data. This is uh, data from the World Wildlife uh, Foundation or fund. They're saying that uh, as a planet, we've lost half of our soil, farmable soil, in the last 150 years. That doesn't sound particularly promising to me and probably doesn't to you. And then they say, oh, well, it's not over the whole world. Uh, it just happens to be where people live and where we farm. So obviously people are the problem. The earth isn't jettisoning soil. You know, it's us that is, uh, is the problem. I had a farmer say the other day, you know, if you looked at the world from outer space as a farmer would, you would say you have a pest problem <laughs> and it's us. Um, so we got to rethink how we're doing this. And in fact, the USDA standard now says you don't even need soil in an organic system. That's concerning to me. It's concerning to a lot of organic farmers. Not all organic farmers, I'll grant you that. And certainly not all organic food companies. Maybe farmers more than, than food companies. So we've got this issue where we're talking about organic, we're talking about regenerative, we're trying to, at Roto Institute, we're trying to put all these pieces together. We've got the USDA, which is um, being pushed and shoved around by big uh, industry and big food companies that have market opportunities in soilless growing systems. How are we as a, uh, a farm community going to react to this? That's kind of where we were coming from and what we were thinking about. At the same time, while we're sitting here in this room talking about regenerative organic agriculture, there are meetings going on all across the country and around the world where people are talking about regenerative agriculture as it pertains to conventional agriculture. They like the word sustainable. Sustainable has no meaning in the marketplace anymore today. It means everything and it means nothing at the same time. So they recognize that. They're not uh, uh, stupid people. They're smart people. And they're saying, okay, if the word sustainable doesn't mean anything, what does? And this word regenerative comes up. And they say, okay, how do we become regenerative without being organic? In effect, what they're saying is, how do we put the stamp of regenerative on what we're currently doing, on what the status quo is, so we can capture that market, get those dollars out of the food system? That's what they're trying to do, because it's all about money. It's really not about human health or planetary health like the Rodale family was talking about. Most of us as farmers, very rarely do you get to talk to medical doctors about human health. They don't call you in for consultations on their patients. They should, but they don't. And they should for one reason. Because if you look at every doctor in the United States, at least, takes the Hippocratic Oath. Hippocrates, he lived back about the same time as Xenophon, uh, who said it was all about the soil. He, uh, um, Hippocrates wrote a list of questions a patient or information a patient should know, a doctor should know about their patient. And it was a list of, of nine different or 11 different items. And one of those things on the list was he said a physician should know something about the soil where a patient's food comes from. When's the last time you went to a doctor or a physician and he said, tell me something about the soil where your food comes from? All of us as farmers would drop over with Excitement, maybe, but uh, and, and most people wouldn't have the answer. They wouldn't have a clue what, how to answer that question. But Hippocrates knew 300, 400 years before the birth of Christ that our human health was connected to the soil. We can't disconnect that. And yet, in organic, we're saying, oh, yes, we can. 
because in the marketplace you can. You just put that little sticker on it, and it's organic. And you say that it's, but it doesn't even have any soil connected to it. How can we talk about human health and planetary health if we don't talk about soil? And then we look at some of the new technologies that are coming along, like gene editing. How many people are familiar with gene editing? A few people, not so many. Gene editing is a little different than genetic modification. In real, real simplistic terms, what gene uh, a mutation does is it takes a package of genes from a, a separate uh, plant or species and it inserts it into the plant that you're trying to manipulate. And that's genetic modification. And when you take that gene package and shove it in there, it leaves a trail. So anytime you have a product, it can be tested by a laboratory to see if it's been genetically altered. With gene editing, it's completely different. They're using surgical genetic scissors to go in and simply snip out sections of the DNA right at the cellular form, and it leaves no trace. So there is absolutely no way a consumer or a customer can tell whether they're getting gene-edited products. So uh, one of the things that the NOP got right in the short term is they said, okay, gene editing is not allowed in organic. The reality is they have no way of keeping it out. All they can do is say that because there's no way for them to test to see if the seed or the product that you're planting or you're selling was genetically edited or not. They have, there is no mechanism to tell. Now, in the short term, it's very expensive, and so any product that's going to be sold is going to be highly managed and marketed. But once it gets out into the world, there'll be no way to track it or trace it. And what's really interesting is if you read some of the popular press around this, this happened to come from, I think, uh, last April in Successful Farming, they said that the people who have this CRISPR technology or gene editing technology, they said their goal, I don't know if you can read it at the bottom, but it says our goal is to have genetically edited traits in every major crop within 10 years. Every crop is going to be genetically edited. They already have herbicide-tolerant uh, canola. They're working on a whole bunch of things, herbicide-resistant rice, numerous others. Some of those things are coming on the market as early as 2019. Who in this room asked for this? Who in this room wants this? How many of your customers said, this is what we really need, this is what's going to save the world? Not only that, but while they're gene editing plants, they are also gene editing animals. And I don't expect you to read any of this, but at the bottom of this screenshot, which came from uh, a, a popular press article back in uh, 2017, it said, gene editing, which has raised ethical concerns due to its capacity to alter human DNA, is being considered for livestock industry in the United States. So they're going to gene edit animals. Now, the off-casts that they don't want are going to be dumped on the market, and you may end up buying them. Could be the bull you buy, the ram you buy. That's not doesn't need to be certified as organic, and you would have no way of knowing. So there's no way we can keep this out of the system as the cat is literally out of the bag. The scary part is, it all that we know it ha it alters human DNA. I guess we don't care. And yet, agriculture is talking all the time about getting more efficient. We have to get bigger, 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 bigger. Uh, I just like I like machinery and equipment, and so sometimes these aren't pictures I took. I just searched the internet, uh, but that is an amazing combine. Each one of these is a 15-foot grain head. Uh, look at all the bins they had to stack together to make that work. Ag engineering is amazing. What's the point to this? 
So we're going to have gene-edited crops that we're shoving through this system to get the cost so low, to get the pork price so low, while we're making people sick. To the point where people much smarter than me that have thought about this problem. Now, uh, Stephen Hawking, if you've read anything about him, he passed away earlier in 2018. But shortly before he died, uh, he said, humans have less than 100 years on this planet if we keep doing what we're doing. And he saw, sees no intention of people stopping what they're doing. And so we pretty much mucked this planet up. And so he, if you read some of his writings, what he said was, we're going to have to leave planet Earth. That means we have to find another planet to colonize. Now, you may have noticed in the news, we just sent a, uh, a spaceship to Mars, and we landed safely on Mars, and we're capturing all kinds of information. Uh, stepping stone to other planets. Well, first we have to find another planet that's habitable to humans. Then we have to figure out how we can colonize it, because I'm sure whatever life forms are currently there are really thrilled that we're going to come. Uh, that would be nice. And then, <laughs> I mean, if you think they're going to take 9 billion people, you're probably mistaken. Now, your main name may be on the list, but I'm pretty sure the Moyers were not on the list. We're going to have to stay here on planet Earth and make this work. So we've got to figure out how to do it, and the sooner the better, in my opinion. And you can understand people saying, well, yeah, but you know, people are getting healthier with this system. You may not like the chemicals, Jeff Moyer. Uh, we don't care. People are getting healthier. They are not. People are getting sicker. The same thing we did with agriculture where we mask that, that degradation of the soil with chemical inputs in conventional agriculture, we have done the same thing with humans. As we are getting sicker and sicker as a species, we mask it with pharmaceuticals. Bare chemical that makes all the pharmaceuticals also makes all of the chemicals that we spray on the soil. They, they bought Monsanto. So they spray everything, make us sick, and then sell pharmaceutical drugs into us to, make us, to keep us functioning. That's crazy. It's a, if you work in the chemical industry, it's a really good gig because you, know, you sell stuff to make people sick and then sell them something to try to make them feel better about it, and it just goes back and forth. But that's really not what we should be doing. I don't know what state you're from. You can pick any state you want. If you're in a purple state, you're fatter than the rest of us. Uh, if you're in that yellow state in Colorado, you're doing better than most of us. But the bottom line is everybody is obese. Nationwide, we're about 35% not just overweight, obese. So take a look at the two people next to you. If they look okay, it's you. Uh, this is kind of scary. But what's interesting about this is while we're making people heavy and heavy, obesity, uh, I think it uh, doesn't show you, uh, show you there, um, it increases uh, heart attack, uh, diabetes, all sorts of things that go with it. In fact, in the United States alone, the annual cost for obesity on an annual basis is $450 billion. Think what we could do, think what you could do on your farm with $450 billion. What could we do if we wanted to change an agricultural production strategy and you had $450 billion every year to spend on it? That's quite amazing. And we can do that just by changing how we are feeding ourselves. And what we're talking about is changing the way we use resources. I happened to take this picture in California a few years ago, and I stopped by the side of the road because there was a sign right by this green field here that said organic raisin grapes. I took that picture. 
I turned 180 degrees and took this picture on the other side of the road. Which side of the road do you want to live on? Pretty apparent. Which side of the road would soil microbes do better at? Butterflies, birds, earthworms, pick any creature you like. Why is 95% of agriculture this and not this? Because that's what we've told people we want. That's what the marketplace has been telling farmers they want. But the marketplace is changing. If you're a grain farmer, this used to be your boss. And all you have to do is deliver corn to that dump station, dump it in there, they weigh the truck, they take a little sample, and if you're anywhere near number two corn, it's number two corn. Because they blend to a minimum. So if your corn's really good, they'll blend it with somebody who's really bad, and then it's all number two corn, because that's what the market wants, number two corn. That's the person you have to make happy. Used to be like that. Not like that anymore. So whatever you're growing, whatever you're farming, this is the new boss. This poses several problems for farmers if you look across the country. Now, not this group in this room, but if you look at the average age of farmers in the United States, they say it's uh, 58 and a half. It varies a little bit depending whose numbers you look at. But if you look at the median, it tells a different story. We have six times as many farmers over the age of 65 as we have under the age of 35. I don't care what industry you're in. I don't care if it's your church, your schools. I don't care where it is. If, if you've got more people over the age of 65 than you have under the age of 35, get out. It's dead. That's where we are in agriculture today. So we've got an aging farm population that used to report to this guy that not, now report to this woman. If you're 65, you don't understand her. You probably don't even like her unless she's your granddaughter. How are you going to market a product to somebody that you don't even like? They're saying, oh, they're living in their parents' basement, you know, playing on their cell phones with computer games. They are bright, intelligent, well-educated people that have this tool, and they know how to use it. And they are pulling back the curtain on everything that you market, and rightfully so. That bit of information is not lost on the brands who are buying the raw ingredients to make products. So they're thinking multiple years ahead of where you are. And what we're talking about in this meeting is how are you going to catch up to that marketplace, to where those brands are going, or, or you're going to be left behind. Whatever it is you're farming, you're going to be left behind. Because she's smart, she's clever, and she has more money, over $600 billion a year, that she's spending on food annually. These are smart people spending a lot of money. And that's your new boss. And what's really interesting is, and why I'm getting, I'll get to the point eventually. Uh, when she comes to the marketplace, she is not looking for value. She is looking for values comes with a whole suite of values. She's interested in knowing how that product was produced, where it was produced, how the people that produced it were treated, how the animals are treated. And if she pulls back the curtain on the pork sandwich that she ate and sees those pigs pinned to the floor of the steel bar, that company is out of business. Jeff Bezos just had an article. I read it in the newspaper, uh, not in the newspaper, in the magazine, in the back of the airplane seat on my way here. 
on the United flight, and it said, Jeff Bezos said, if something happens in the real world and you lose a customer or make them angry, you probably lost six customers. If you make somebody mad on an internet sale, you lost 6,000 customers. That is true about your farm, too. If somebody comes to your farm and pulls back the curtain and sees that you're not doing something right, they're going to go to you, they're going to go to who's buying your product, and everybody in the marketplace is going to know it. And something as big as General Mills can go in the toilet. We have those food companies coming to our farm all the time saying, we are preparing for the future because this is what's happening. And, you know, when... Uh, when Nestle Corporation, which is the largest food company in the world by two times, comes to us and says, we are not too big to fail. We can disappear from the planet in an instant. In the few clicks of computer keys, we are out of business. They're aware of that. You need to be aware of it, too. Consumers have choices. They have many choices. Those of us that are organic farmers, you know, we have the USDA seal. One of the things you'll notice that is that once the USDA came out with this nice green and white seal, everybody else's seal got green and white too. Last count, there's about 350 of them out there. Everybody's trying to steal your market without doing the work that you're doing if you're an organic farmer. And like I said, there are meetings going on all across the country right now with people saying, how can I eat your lunch and not have to do all the hard work that you're doing to be an organic farmer. You can do it now with hydroponics. So if you're farming lettuce out in the field trying to grow it, you're going to compete with somebody who's farming it in a room like this with light bulbs, who doesn't have any issues with water, who doesn't have any issues with uh, weather, that doesn't have any issues with labor problems because the lettuce scoots out the door on its own. How do you compete with that? And say it's the same product because it's all going to carry that USDA seal. I have concerns about that. You should, too. You have to be aware of what's happening. I think that's one of the reasons we come to these kinds of meetings, is to inspire ourselves to think outside of our farm, because we all get uh, trapped into our daily activities, myself included. Well, at the Rodeo Institute, just a little plug for the work we're doing. We're doing a lot of research because we understand that agriculture moves on the back of science, and rightly so. So somebody has to do this work because you can't just, I can't stand up here and tell you a story without having some science behind it to verify it and have it make sense. I can't go talk to the USDA or to even folks at uh, Bayer Chemical and tell them my story because they're going to say, show me your science. If you go, well, I don't have any, you might as well just go out and tell your story to the telephone pole because it's meaningless. You have to have science and we have good, solid science behind what we're saying. This is an important statement. Uh, and it's not my statement, it's Neil Tyson's, but the good thing about science is, is that it's true whether you believe it or not. You know, when we had this big argument a few years ago in Congress about smoking and whether smoking causes cancer, it took 7,000 experiments and 25 years to prove what any kindergarten kid can tell you is that sucking smoke into your lungs is, lungs is probably not a good thing. No, we can argue whether it causes cancer or not. But nobody would argue and say, well, the best way to get healthy is to smoke cigarettes. Nobody would say that. So we know it doesn't work. Nobody would say the best way to improve the health of your products or your crops is to spray pesticides on them. Nobody would say that the best way to raise pork to make a really happy, healthy pig is to pin it to the floor with steel bars and force it. In fact, you know, those pigs, when they don't, when they don't deliver, anybody raise pigs in the room here? Yeah, so you know what farrowing is like. When the pigs don't farrow fast enough, they actually 
because they're pinned to the floor and can't move, they can jump on them and squirt them out faster because, you know, it's almost break time. It's insane. Uh, people don't want to pay for that. We have our farming systems trial work at, at Rodeo Institute. I, I encourage you to look up our information on the website. This is science that we give away for free. It is your science as much as ours. If you can use it and help to argue your case with consumers or buyers, please, please do so. Feel free to do it. We've moved from our, our farming system. If our farming systems trial was actually started uh, in 1981, and it's still going on. You go to a university and try to find an experiment that's been going on for 40 years. Universities are really good at doing certain things. They are really bad at long-term systems trials. They're really good at two-year studies because that's what it takes to get a master's or a PhD degree. So all the projects are set up to look at two-year studies. Three years, if you're lucky, four years, they think you're doing something magical. You can't look at biology for two years and tell what's going to happen to the soil or the field or the crops or the animals. It doesn't work that way. You have to look at these things over time. So in this particular experiment, we started with soil that was uh, conventional, transitioned it to organic, and we mapped that transition over time, still keeping a third of it as conventionally based system. In our vegetable systems trial, we're doing just the opposite. We're starting with land that it was farmed organically since 1971, and we transitioned some of it to conventional. And we're tracking the degradation of the soil and mapping it against the food quality. And in the very first year, we saw changes and differences. In one year, the way you man as soon as you start using chemicals, the quality of the food starts going down. And that food is what, it's not only what you eat, it is you. It becomes you. If it's not in the soil, it's not in the food, not in the food, it's not in you. That's what G.I. Rodeau was saying. That's what, what uh, uh, Hippocrates and Xenophon were saying 400 years before the birth of Christ, and we're still talking about it and arguing about it. And we're doing this because we know the USDA itself says that we've been losing nutritional value of our food. If you look at their studies, and you, you know, you can some things not so much, other things more. But at the end of the day, it looks like we're losing about 1% about a year of the vitamin and mineral content of our food. So if you were eating broccoli 30 years ago, you got to eat you know, three times as much to get the same vitamins and minerals. Then we wonder why we have obesity. We're eating all these empty calories to get the vitamins and minerals that our bodies crave and need, and it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, food really is medicine. It's kind of funny when you look at these numbers. Here in the United States, I don't know if you can read these numbers. In 1960, we spent uh, less than a third on health care as we spend on food. Today, we spend five times as much on, uh, on uh, three times as much on health care as we do on food. The numbers are completely reversed. You can't tell me that, there's, that cheap food hasn't caused. I understand correlation is not causation. I got it. But I'm not stupid either. I can see that we're spending way more on health care today than we do on food, and we used to spend way more on food than we do on health care. The, the system has changed. Why did it change? Because the people who are interested in health care own the food system, and it's a perfect model because they can get a lot more for pharmaceuticals than they can for food. This has nothing to do with my conversation today. I just threw it in here because I think it's really, really fascinating. And it has to do with Purple Majesty potatoes. Rodeo Institute is working with Penn State Hershey Medical Center and Colorado State University to look at the uh, anthocyanin that, that's in the potato that makes it purple. This anthocyanin 
it's actually a better cancer-fighting chemical than the chemicals that they use in, uh, for cancer treatment. It will actually kill cancer stem cells in a Petri dish. The beauty of this is because it's not a pharmaceutical, we can go direct to human feeding studies. That's what we're doing with Penn State Hershey Medical Center. Can you imagine if you get colon cancer in the future and the doctor says, here's my prescription, eat purple potatoes? I can live with that because I like potatoes. But it begs the question, why would you wait to have cancer before you start eating purple potatoes? Start eating them today. If there are any cancer cells in your body, the purple potato, the antecedent, will kill them. That's pretty magical, pretty amazing. And what we're doing, the work that we're doing at the Institute, uh, because we're not medical professionals, is we're being able to showcase that when you farm organically and have healthy soil, there's more antecedent in the potato. Those potatoes are better at fighting cancer than conventional purple potatoes. Here's another little bit of information that looks at the correlation, not the causation, the correlation of the rise in autism partnered and showcased against the rise in Roundup use. The two are linked together. As Roundup use went up, so does the use of so does the uh, cases of autism. To the point where in 1975 there was one case in 5,000. In 2009, there was one case in 110. Now, some of it's detection. I got it. But that's not it. It is the food we are eating and the way we produce food. And, that can, and the way that, how this all links together is that consumer, that new millennial consumer, has all this information in that little thing they hold in their hand and know how to use better than I do, maybe better than you do. And they know what to do with that information. And they're going to say, I don't like this. I don't want it. How, what are you going to do in the food profession to give me what I want and need? Anybody here ever heard of ergothionine? No. I had never heard of it either until working with some medical doctors. Turns out that ergothionine is an amino acid in the soil. It is only produced by soil funguses. And its primary role in our diet is to fight neurological diseases and cancers. It's only produced by soil funguses and certain mushrooms and certain soil bacteria that act like funguses in the soil. What does Roundup do? Kill soil fungus. Many people don't know that uh, Roundup is an herbicide that also holds two patents. Monsanto has two patents on it uh, to be used as a broad-spectrum antibacterial. Uh, it's a, got antibacterial properties. If you spray it as an antibiotic, it's illegal. If you spray it because it's off-label. If you spray it as an herbicide, it's legal, but it still carries its antibacterial properties with it. It's crazy. So we're killing off the funguses that are actually trying to keep us alive. So when we look at soil health and we talk about the health of soil, how do we begin to look at the little micronutrients and uh, antecedents and antitoxins and anti-inflammatories and uh, amino acids that the soil is producing that we don't even know about. They've known about uh, ergothionine since, uh, and, and Google search it when you get a chance. They've known about it since 1907, but they never knew how, how it was produced or what it did. Now they're starting to discover how important it is to be in our food, and it's not in our food. So when you looked at that USDA study that showed food degradation from 1950 to 1999, and they talked about losing vitamin and min minerals, they never looked at ergothionine. 
because they didn't even know what it was or what's in there. So we're going back and looking at food and going, oh crap, that's missing too. And then cancer rates go up, autism goes up, Alzheimer's goes up. These are diseases that we can control with the food that we eat. And linking it back to my story, we have $450 billion a year to play with to make this right if we change the way we do it. The bottom line is, if we have toxic soil, we have a toxic body. And we also have a toxic planet. So what are we going to do about all this? <clears throat> I worked at the Rodale Institute for many, many years. And Bob Rodale, who I showed you a picture of, always said to me, never, never come in my office with a problem unless you have a solution for it. Because the world is full of people talking about problems. It's not full of people talking about solutions. You've got to find solutions to this. And there are solutions, and that's what's really the positive side of this story. We know there's problems. We know there's problems in the way we're producing food, and we also, even in organic, uh, and, and I'm, a, I'm an organic farmer, uh, but there's problems. How are we going to begin to address those problems so that those millennials who are smart enough to ask the right questions get what they deserve and what they want because they're shopping with values, not just value? Well, what the Rodale Institute do, Rodeo Institute did was partnered with a few major brands around the world to create a new standard that we're here to talk about today, which is the Regenerative Organic Certification Standard. There is a website that I'd ask you all to go look it up. It is, it's the Regenerative Organic Alliance. What we did was we created a separate nonprofit to hold this standard so that it's not just Rodale Institute standard or it's not just one of the brands that's helping us establish it because they make money and we don't. And that's what, this is a screenshot of that website. And within that, uh, that website, when you, when you get there, and I, I do encourage you to look at it, right in the center there's a thing called ROC Framework. And when you click on that, this little booklet's going to come up. That's all the regulations that we wrote into the standard, and they're focused on some key pillars. First, we're saying that carbon belongs in the soil, not in the air. So soil is really important to what we're going to talk about. We're also really, really interested in protecting and growing the organic market. So in order to be a regenerative organic certified farm operation, you must be certified organic through the USDA. This is not, it's, it's, it's kind of wrong to say it's an add-on certification, but it functions in that same sort of fashion. In, des in designing this, this um, framework, we worked hand-in-glove with the USDA to make sure that we don't run afoul of them because we are using the word organic in our title. And remember, we gave it away to the USDA. The USDA owns the word organic as it pertains to food and fiber in the United States. IFOM International kind of owns it as it pertains to food and fiber production around the world. So if you want to use this word and sell a product in the United States, you really have to work with the, with the NOP. And again, it's not our, our goal to step on or damage the rich legacy that all of us have in the organic industry have worked decades to create and protect. We want to build on that. But within that standard, there's certain things that we're going to look at. Uh, first, we're going to say soil is important. And if we farm differently, we can change the soil. 
So here's, here's some soils. Uh, they, these are held by Dr. Ray Weil at the moment in his hands. Uh, he's from the University of Maryland. He was up at Rodale Institute. And in that farming systems trial where we converted conventional land to organic, this is the soil. We started with this. A few years later, we got this. It's really, really some good news. What it's telling us as farmers is if we change the way we farm, we can improve our soil. And there's no limit to how much you can improve it. So just because you're an organic farmer doesn't mean you're good enough. You may be, you may not be. Well, there's a lot of organic farmers that don't think much about healthy soil in the way they farm their operation. Not so much on a family farm scale, but when you get into large corporate farms where it's all about money, things change a lot. These are farmers that are renting... 10,000 acres, 20,000 acres. They're renting it on this side of the road. Five years later, they're renting it on that side of the road. Then they're renting it over there. They're not really interested in soil health. They're interested in making money because there's a lot of money to be made. And if you can make that money without doing the work, you know, if you could get a college degree without going to college, we'd all have one. If you could get a PhD just by sending in a letter, maybe, maybe you can, I don't know. Uh, maybe we'd all have those too. That's not how it works. You're doing the hard work. You should reap the benefit of that hard work. We're trying to give you the tools and mechanisms to do that. What's really interesting, a little hard to see, I know, um, these are the soils. If you look at them, these are soil columns. What's really interesting is we talked about soil, carbon belongs in the soil. In the organic soil, we're sequestering more carbon and at greater depths. Over twice as far down into the soil, we're storing carbon. And look what happens when you put those two soil, clumps of soil in the water. Back when uh, President Obama was in, in office and Secretary Vilsack was the head of the USDA, I was fortunate enough to be uh, with him. And I, I, I actually brought some soil because that was fun to do. And I, on the way there, I picked up two little plastic aquariums for like a buck a piece at the dollar store. Uh, everything in the dollar store is a dollar, just so you know. Um, I put some water in there, and I dumped the soil in his office, just dumped them in there. I said, watch this, and I dumped it in there. And he goes, well, what are you showing me? I said, I'm showing you organic soil against conventional soil. Yeah, Jeff, he said, I know, that looks great. He said, but most, we're pushing no-till. I said, this is no-till. That's what chemicals do to the soil. That's what they're doing to us. It's the exact same soil quality. These soil samples were taken 10 feet apart from each other in the field. It's a very positive soil. The good news is we can have improvement if we think about the soil and how we're going to regenerate it, not just use it. We're also, as organic farmers, really interested, uh, as regenerative organic farmers, in farm worker fairness. If this were a $400 coat from Patagonia made out of organic cotton, which it's not, the buyer of that coat wants to know that that cotton wasn't harvested by 10-year-old girls in Turkey that were forbidden to go to school. If that's what somebody finds on their cell phone and comes to Patagonia and goes, can you explain this? Patagonia can go out of business. They're not immune to that, and not, they know that. So, you know, this picture, I showed this to somebody, and they said, oh, but look, the kids are smiling. Kids are always happy. You could drive over my six-year-old grandson and he'd laugh at and smile at you for it, you know. That doesn't mean we should do it. Child labor and fiber production is really, really important. It's critical. And it's out there. And it's happening. And people who are buying organic products think that's not happening. But there is nothing in the organic standard that says that can't happen. 
The organic standard is completely silent on this issue. So what we're trying to do with regenerative organic is get out ahead of the curve on this, in this conversation. Animal welfare. This is an organic dairy. Organic chickens. Are you freaking kidding me? It doesn't look like my farm, and we have an organic dairy. It's not the dairy farm they put on the, on the milk carton, but it's organic. But is it really what customers think they're buying? And I can tell you, if too much of that information gets out on the internet and people stop buying organic milk, they hurt all of us. If they stop buying organic poultry, it hurts you with your backyard flock. They go, ah, it's all the same. You guys are just pulling the wool over my eyes. We're all connected in this, and this framework helps us adjust or talk about this because first it's based on organic certification, and then it adds three additional pillars. Soil health and land management, animal welfare, and fair uh, worker and farmer standards. Those are the issues that people buy with and shop for and they appreciate. And what happens is when customers come into the store and they go, oh, this one's certified organic and this one's animal welfare approved. Those are both important to me. I like them both. You're organic. And they go, but my daughter was just telling me about cows. I'm going to buy this one. You just got hurt. You got hurt in the marketplace because you're not both. Now, we have a lot of farmers that are both or triple, and I had one farmer say to me, I feel like a Boy Scout full of merit badges because I'm animal welfare approved, I'm organic, I'm halal. Um, you know, he said, it seems like every time I turn around, there's an inspector or an auditor here. He said, I feel like a Boy Scout with a sash full of merit badges. But if you think about that Boy Scout image, once if you go through scouting, and, and they threw me out back in Weeblos or something, you know. Um, if you go through scouting through your whole high school career, you can become an Eagle Scout. At Rodeo Institute, we hire lots of people off and on. And if you're an Eagle Scout, people put that on their resume because that's quite an honor. They don't say, I got a merit badge for, you know, whatever, woodworking or something. In order to get that Eagle Scout badge, you had to get, you know, 200 merit badges or you can't get there. They, the farmer said, can't I get one badge that says I do it all? I take care of the workers on my farm. I take care of the animals that are on my farm. I'm really interested in improving the health of my soil, and I'm certified organic. Can I just get one thing that consumers go, I don't have to pick and choose. That's what I'm looking for. That's what we're trying to create with this standard. So if you look at the standard, uh, I'll try to speed it up. Uh, we're trying to leverage the international and national domestic organic standards that already exist. So we're not trying to rewrite the book there. We're saying if organic, you can't be regenerative without being organic. You can't say you're healthy if you're a smoker. We have 7,000 studies that say it's not possible. We spent billions of dollars to prove that that's not possible. You can say it, but it's not true. It's just not true. And so you can't be regenerative. Although, like I said, there are people who are trying to eat our lunch and say, regenerative and regenerative organic, yeah, they're about the same. That's not true. We can't let them have that word. The additional pillars, I already mentioned those. Within our standard, we understand that it's challenging to meet this standard. We set a very high bar, but that's how we improve the industry. That's how we improve as farmers. That's how we improve as a society, is to set high bars and then try to achieve them. There's no sense in setting a bar below that everybody can step over and go, ta-da, we made it. That's not what we're trying to do. We're trying to set a very high bar. And we recognize that that's hard to achieve, so we created several points of entry. You can enter at the bronze level, silver level, or of course you can be at the gold level. Gold level is going to be hard. It's meant to be hard. 
I had a farmer say, if I can't be the gold standard, I don't want to participate, and it's too hard. Okay, don't participate. We're not going to change the standard and lower the bar for you, because then somebody else will go, oh, well, that bar is too high for me. I want it lower, lower, and it's a race to the bottom. That's what's happening to some degree in organic today, and we want to protect that and make that not possible. So by raising the bar high for everybody, it drags everybody, everybody has to go along with it. Uh, when you go into the website, there is a path to organic, a regenerative organic. Uh, it follows the same path as organic. It's a three-year transition. So this transition into regenerative organic does not have to happen separate from the organic transition. What we're doing is we're creating a service that your certifier is going to provide to you. They provide multiple services now. Some do. So when they come to your farm, they're going to say, do you want to be organic? Do you want to be regenerative organic? Do you want to be... Uh, Grass-fed, what are you trying to certify it for? It's a service. There is a soil health module that tells you as a farmer if you're growing crops or managing soil what you have to do. Keep in mind, this, is, this was a challenge to pull together because this is an international standard. It is not just a, a Kentucky standard or a Pennsylvania standard or a California standard. It is a global standard. So every crop in the world, every soil type, every animal had to be incorporated into this standard every plant, you know, every weather pattern. That's a challenge. We created the standard in 2016. In 2017, we vetted it through uh, a public comment period. We came up with the standard. We are now in the pilot phase. We have, well, we started with 22 farms, two dropped out already. We have 20 farms that we're running through the pilot phase. You do not have to wait till that pilot phase is over if you want to get in line with what we're doing here. You can, you can read them. We may fine-tune some things, but we're not throwing it out wholesale. So nothing major is going to change in that framework. So you can look at that and track your farm against what we're doing there. Um, you know, I had one farmer say to me, um, I, I don't, quite honestly, I don't treat my workers very fairly. Uh, I don't pay them enough. I can't afford it. I couldn't, I couldn't do this. I said, okay. Well, he said, you should throw that out. Why? Because in the next guy says, I can't manage my soil well with my system, so let's throw that out, and let's throw animal welfare out, and let's throw organic out, and then we have what we have. And we're not going to do that. We're saying, this is going to encourage you. you know, then after I said that, he goes, well, maybe I could do, do things differently, and maybe I could pay more than I am. It's like, that's what this is supposed to do. Open that conversation up so we can do that. The same thing is true with animal welfare. What we did with animal welfare and fair farm worker standards was Rodale Institute is not an expert in those fields. No, we're the brands that we worked with. So what we did was we took off-the-shelf language that has already been well vetted and has been embedded in those certifications that already exist. You can get animal welfare approved. We said, there's language that works. We're just going to embed that into our standard. Where we did take some liberty was with the soil health standard because that Rodale is all about soil health. Going back to what G.I. Rodell said, it all starts with the soil. That's why I brought that up. And the farm fair worker standards. We had a farmer that said, uh, it was an Amish farmer, he said, yeah, but you know, we use child labor on our farm. That's different. That's different. Those are your children. Because they said, when their children work side by side with us, that's how they learn our ethics and our work values. That's fine. That's not what we're talking about. You don't have their legs tied together with, uh, with cord and beat them with bamboo sticks, I don't think. I don't hope. If you are, then we do have a problem with that. But if you're, you know, you say, well, you know, all my cousins come out and work on the farm for free on weekends, that's a different story. One farmer said, because there's, an, there's a conversation in here about collective bargaining. 
if you have large labor pools on your farm, they have a right to uh, get together, uh, separate from you, talk about the work situation, and come to you as the owner and say, we'd like to make, we suggest some changes. We'd like to see that change. That's fair. Somebody said, well, does that mean my kids can like collectively bargain and shut me down? It's like, yeah, nice try. I had kids too. That's not what it means. So we're not trying to be over-restrictive and over-prescriptive. We're just saying that those customers, when they're buying that product, when they pull back the curtain, what are they going to see on your farm? If you came to your farm as a, an outsider and looked at it and go, yeah, that's not right, fix it. That's all we're saying is fix it because the customer is going to do that. Uh, there is some field testing for soil. This comes up all the time in conversations. And it's not because we're testing to a standard. It's because we're testing against yourself. If the goal is to improve the health of the soil, you have to periodically look at what you're doing and see if it's having positive impact. If it's not, we're not telling you to, that you won't be certified. We're saying you have to try some new strategies because we're not going to let anybody stand still. While I said you can enter at the bronze level, you cannot stay at the bronze level. You must show that you're in the process of moving to silver. You can stay at silver forever. Nobody has to go to gold. Because at, gold, at the gold standard, there's no tillage. And a lot of us as organic farmers rely on, on tillage for weed management. And that's okay. We're saying there's room for that. And in the marketplace, there's no differentiation between gold and silver. That's kind of a personal thing that you're trying to strive for because many of us want our farms to be that gold standard. My, my farm at home won't necessarily meet this standard right away, and that's okay. When I told that to uh, some folks at the food company, they go, why would you create a standard that you can't meet? Because it's already encouraging us to look at our farm differently and saying, here's where the future is going. How do we do that? We have many brands that are supporting what we're doing. Most of us as farmers do not sell product, if you're a commodity grower, directly to an individual. You sell it to a processor that processes the product and then turns it into flour and sells it to a baking company. Or tells it, turns our cotton, spins it into uh, yarn, and then sells it to a, uh, uh, a company that's building, a, making a clothing product out of it. So we have to look at what's happening there and, and where the market's going. And the beauty of this is it's a beautiful partnership between farmers, customers, and the brands. The brands, the customers are demanding it and want it. The brands are in place to advertise it and sell it, and they're going to reward us as farmers for producing that product. It's going to work. It's going to take some time to unfold. But we're all players in this. We all have a role to play, and we all have to think about it. The bottom line is we have to connect to each other, farmer to farmer. We have to talk about these things. We have to connect with our customers and consumers. We have to figure out how to connect with those millennials. Those of you who are organic farmers, do you have a Facebook page? Get one. Uh, do you tweet or Twitter? I don't, but I have people who do. Maybe you have a daughter, a granddaughter, a niece, a nephew, a neighbor who wants to do that. You have to communicate and tell your story. It's going to help you in the long run. We always have to connect to the soil, and we certainly have to connect to life. Thank you very much. Again, that was Jeff Moyer with the Rodale Institute from our 2018 conference in Louisville, Kentucky. Thank you again for listening today. This has been another episode of Tractor Time, brought to you by Acres USA, the voice of eco-agriculture. You can learn more from us at acresusa.com. You can learn from us at ecofarmingdaily.com. You can find this podcast on both of those websites, as well as Apple iTunes and across a whole bunch of different 
players in the world. So thank you for listening. Uh, thank you for sharing this. Thank you again for Albert Lee Seeds for sponsoring today's episode. And everybody, Happy New Year.